0: Welcome to my podcast, In the Know, my series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no tell. Welcome to In the Know, Uh, Robbie. And you are an entrepreneur now at least two times, if I understand your profile properly, but also a long tenured master of like the glory days of Microsoft. And I think there's so much to get from all this stuff, but the, the place to start is clearly the book you write will not be in the business section which section will it be in?
1: Actually, I, I really prefer to never put my name on a book.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: really? You know, and so I like, I, I recognize I said that, you know, I didn't want it in the business section, which I recognize allowed you to infer that maybe I wanted it in another section, like maybe some
0: other section, history, but you're like, section, Sam, but, I am. But no, I'm like,
1: am. yeah, exactly. Like in the children's book section. But I think this speaks to my style of connecting with people. I would much prefer. Like, if I had to choose between writing a book that would be read by however number of people the publisher tried to convince me we're going to read the book and actually care about it, which, by the way, I wouldn't believe what he had to say on that front, versus entering into a conversation with 10,000 people, you know, where I, I could actually sit down and have a conversation with 10,000 people over the course of several years, I would choose the latter, because from where I sit, Every conversation I have ends up teaching me something. And writing a book makes it seem, and so many books that I've read actually end up reading this way, that the person writing it only has things to teach as opposed to things to learn. It's not a negative against them. I realized that all great people got to where they got because, of course, they had so much to learn. That's like, I'm not making a comment about them as individuals and whether they believe that they have something to learn or not. I'm speaking to the way it, the perception associated with reading a book by someone. It is so one-sided and all of these things are conversations. And so I much prefer to have the conversation over write the book.
0: It's hard to disagree. I think God also like to have 10,000 conversations, but that's a hell of a lot of conversations. I wonder where the break-even is. Where's your break-even? Would you trade yeah, 100 but, conversations but, but, for
1: a break? But, each, but each, each one of them is so rich. You know, I get to, let me give you an example. You know, on, on average, let's say I work 350 days a year. And on average, I have six meaningful conversations every single day in doing my job. I mean, that's a lot of conversations, and I strive to learn something in every single one of those conversations. Would I take that time over the course of two years, I mean, count it, that's, my God, what is that? Well, I have to quickly do the math, it's, uh, you know, that's a lot of conversations. Would I take that and replace that over two years, the, the amount of time it would take me to just write the, a, a book, to just talking, mm-hmm. which is essentially what writing a book is, and I'd say that's no. interesting.
0: Yeah. 2,000 a year, 4,000 in two years. Maybe the typical one is 15 minutes. I mean, it can't be an hour for each of the six per day, it right? It's a half an hour. But still, that's a ton. Yeah, that's still a ton.
1: And there's something 2, to learn hours. from every one of those conversations. And, you know, like my brother so often tells me, and by the way, I'm still learning also that when you're talking, you're not learning.
0: So let's uh, let's rewind a little bit. Let's get to this passion about Listening and learning. You're a startup founder now, but you're sort of recently arrived. Someone looking at your profile would say microsurf. Am I wrong? How would you describe the story uh, of how you got I, here?
1: I wish that that was the case because, you know, I, I felt like, unlike some of the people who were around me at that time at Microsoft who were so smart about selling their stock, because I was an entrepreneur both at heart and like at a genetic level, almost the thought of selling the company that I cared so deeply about was just anathema. I mean, it just was not even an option. So when you look at my year,
0: like you went straight from undergrad at Princeton to a decade or so, maybe a bit longer. 12 at years, Microsoft,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and they like were the all head, the
0: coolest divisions, like, right? You were in like yeah. consumer, and you were. And it was an control amazing control. time.
1: It was an amazing, amazing yeah. time of the company. But I, you know, fair, I, I, I didn't so end reasonable. up with much to show from it, other than at a financial level. Now, I would not give okay. up those years not in a heartbeat. Is
0: it a matter the, of timing? Like you left at a moment when the Microsoft, st- I mean, the stock, because like these days, it's more valuable than it ever was. Microsoft.
1: That's right. Well, I mean, but it it's took, a whole 10 or 11 it took, years later. It took 10 yeah. years. That's right. It took 10 years after I left. So yeah, I guess if I had stayed for an additional 10 years, things would have been different. <laughs> but, more that, years. but that was not going to be an option. And in any case, it's not about the money. It just isn't. I don't even think about my Microsoft experience that way, though. You know, I recognized it, kind of set it up that day that, you know, here's this guy who made all this money at Microsoft, and it's really just about that. And the truth is that. I didn't, but I did learn a phenomenal amount, and I did grow from being like a professional child or a professional newborn, essentially, to at least thinking, I'd say that I was a professional early teenager when I left Microsoft, and those are formative years, right? And I developed a lot, and I met phenomenal people and got exposed to people who I had on an enormous amount of respect for. I also got exposed to some people who I didn't. And I think that that all had deep impact on the remainder, on the next 13 years of my career. But the financial side of it was a non-event. I mean, it was just... Yeah, let's go into it a bit more. I'm sure if
0: I used the term incorrectly That the folks in Redmond understand in a way that's different from my own reading of the Douglas Copeland novel in the 1990s called Microsurf. My casual use of it was, oh, here's this guy who spent the 90s at Microsoft, a slave to that beast. Not so much about money, but maybe that is how you guys interpreted it. Mine rather was that you were inside a Bork that like, was so widely admired, but also feared and hated on the outside. But on the inside, it was some kind of paradise. And we're starting to get to that with your yeah. comment about living like a childhood and an adolescence inside a 50 or 100,000 person company at the time. And I'm so curious to learn more about it and your feelings about this. MicroSurf's idea and the playground and and what it meant to join. I mean, in 1993, you joined, I guess, from Princeton. That Merville has just joined a few years before that, right? Uh, The famous Princeton professor, physicist, and entrepreneur who goes on to become the CTO there. And that must have had a role as well.
1: Yeah, although I didn't have much contact with Nathan. It was a magical place, you know, and it was a magical place largely because of Bill and Steve. And the culture that they created around, you know, unconstrained, like total unconstrained thinking, and the resulting willingness to do whatever it took, like, these were just two incredibly audacious people, who no matter what level of success they had, and that's what the world saw from the outside, on the inside, we were always paranoid. We always felt like the underdogs. And that's why I think there's this incredible this it's the irony of Microsoft in, in the nineties. And I think it is the at the source of, of the issue that brought the company to its knees right at the end of the nineties. You know, with the DOJ, right? There was this reckoning of this perception of self versus the perception that the world had of us and they were they couldn't have been more different. They were kind of photo negatives of each other. And we all believed it. Like we really did believe that we were the underdog. Now, it's true that as I joined, we were just coming off of sort of winning against were perfect and winning against multiplan and winning to a large extent over Borland like these sort of seminal battles had kind of been won. And I recognize that you could look at that and say, oh, you know, you should have been so cocky and so you know confident and you should have seen that the company was at the top of their game. But that's not how we felt when I arrived in nineteen ninety two or nineteen ninety three, it was a rival into a a company that was driven largely by Paranoia, but I mean, paranoia is positive, like positive paranoia, like like really feeling like the fight's just starting. a kind and of
0: humility. It's just a yeah. One. I mean, well, it's, the famous language of the time from uh, Grove was only the paranoid survive. I presume that that book had just been published in 91, 92. It didn't sound like a bad thing to me then. I was sort of working in the era as well. I guess I was just finishing school and. 98. But the idea of like always be paranoid was kind of like a stay humble, uh, yeah. stay foolish, stay hungry. That's right. You know?
1: Like no But it hubris. made your people blind. No hubris. And every meeting, and it was many years before I ended up being able to sit in a meeting with Bill. So I only got to hear about them secondhand, although they had a huge cultural impact on the company and certainly on, on me individually. But, you know, all of the conversation that would happen, all of the challenge that would happen, everything was always from a position of you're behind. And the success that you have today will disappear in a matter of months if you aren't, you know, smarter tomorrow than you are today. Now, we didn't say the words like the word hubris. I don't know if it clearly had been named at that point, but no one was talking about no hubris. But certainly we were behaving that way. Uh, So you could call it humble. I would never use that word to describe the leadership of Microsoft, you know, because I think that the leadership at Microsoft knew that they were smart. And I don't put myself Mm -hmm. in that category at the time, like they knew they were smart. They knew that they could do it, but they didn't take for granted that they would do it.
0: Two sides of a coin, I guess, what you're saying, the paradise of the place that challenged itself to compete strongly and was not so arrogant as to think that anything was given, ends up by 2000, 2001 with the end of the litigation from the DOJ and this like shocking moment and very tight controls being put on the company that have already impaired its abilities in some ways as you guys were sort of on some kind of good behavior. right? And you sort of thought that was your deafness to the outside, the thing that energized you on the inside, deafness to the way you're perceived on the outside. Like, why are these guys coming after us? We're still on day one. That's right. Yeah. And maybe that's a a disease like for another Seattle company that's famously always on day one, the Amazon folks are do you feel that you see this in other organizations or is it a unique
1: feature of the Microsoft story? Well, I think that all CEOs are now trained, like this this concept of paranoia is ingrained in all of us. You know, I I think it is what drives many of us every day. And I think it's A little bit inherent because we're talking so much about leaders in the uh, technology space. I think it's inherent in technology, right? Technology is so fast moving, things creep up very, very, very quickly. Mm. Something goes from being unheard of to being the most important development in technology in the last 10 years, like in a matter of months. That yeah, iPhone, happen. January 2008. I mean, speaking of hubris,
0: when Ballmer was in charge, the, um, you know, like the famous Bomber dismissing iPhone or Jim Bell Philly of rim dismissing iPhone, it just emerges from, from nowhere. Some people are like, wow, this is great. Many of the leaders of the large organizations blow it off. And so that phenomenon, I think, yes, we in tech, we do know this phenomenon of something coming around the corner and of posturing either like Gates or Grove or Bezos with this whole first day thing, which I mean, I think... We mean it sincerely, but I think we are a little bit influenced by the way these guys have talked and behaved.
1: Oh, for sure we are. Yeah, because they're But at
0: that moment. But at that moment, but at that moment when, you know, like Bomber's blowing off the iPhone, you must have been cringing too. You were a few years
1: out of Microsoft.
0: Maybe it really just is such a huge surprise that almost any reaction seems like hubris. Do
1: you think Microsoft in the decade after you left had that same level of humility? Probably not. I think they might have lost some of that. What I do know is that Typically, what you see on the outside around the whys and the hows and the when of a given announcement or statement about anything is usually dramatically off from the actual narrative of what was Mm. happening inside the organization. And there can be any number of reasons. It's entirely possible And I'm not saying that I know this or don't know it. The the bottom line is I don't know it. You know, it's entirely possible that internal to Microsoft, they were feeling and acting very, 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 very threatened by the launch of the iPhone. And yet, for a bunch of reasons that we don't yet understand, it could be, who knows, some deal that they were trying to ink that was this close to getting done or some other geopolitical, you know, sort of tectonic impact that set of people who got in a room and ultimately decided what the statement that Steve Ballmer was going to make came up with that statement as being the right statement in light of the situation that they were in. And I think it's hard for us to attribute anything to that statement. You know, yes, of course, when a group of people come up with the way that a senior executive is going to respond, they have to look at all angles, all facets of it, right, and recognize that yes that will be perceived as hubris, but a bunch of other reasons why we're gonna to decide to do it. It's easy to sort of
0: take pot shots at some canned statements, but the canned statement is not reality and it's hard to see what the deeper yeah. culture was inside. Yeah. We're going a little bit deep, and I wanna actually continue yep. and travel a bit deeper on like the glory days of Microsoft a little more, since you have the great privilege of sort of wandering around in there and getting your identity stapled to you by the experiences. Across many different divisions, across many different product categories, it seems like such a unique experience to have done like two or three years here on Hailstorm, there on Money, over here on Consumer, and then over to Windows. Like, is this like the standard career design for folks that show up as fresh graduates at Microsoft back then? or Because Program Manager, that's product.
1: That's right. That's right. I I was in the product team for all but two years of my 12 years at Microsoft.
0: And like Um, product as a a job description, this like weird, like single word floating in the ether, you just call it
1: product? I was a program manager in the product group. So we can talk about product group. Like the product group are the, you know, the people at Microsoft and it's a, a very broad set of functions one of which is the program manager but it's the entire organization at Microsoft at least at the time we were organized this way that are responsible for ultimately building product like the actual bits that get released you know under a given brand name actual product like so you know the people who are working on Microsoft Word or Excel or Visual Basic you know, and these will be developers and program managers and testers and general managers who are running the whole organization and uh, localization specialists. But that whole group, like back in in the day, we sort of thought of Microsoft as these two muscles. You know, there was the muscle of product, the people who were building product day in and day out. And then there was the other muscle of the business, which was sales. And that's kind of as a product guy. I sort of like coming into the company I saw the company in that sort of very polarized you know view that there were people who were responsible for selling the product and people were p- responsible for building the product. And so when and someone they, says we worked on the product side it means that they were working building product. Now I think things so, have gotten so, a little well, bit more complicated since is then. because it's a different piece their
0: motivations are different their styles their training all that stuff those are the MBAs they're the folks who are a little bit more driven by short term targets and money maybe. And in the product group you guys were making things that the world had never seen before for users to help them accomplish more stuff. I mean, like what was the mandate of product assignment? I mean, these days in Silicon Valley to be the head of product is to be the CEO of the product, right? It's like you're taking all interests together to create a thing using the resources of the organization. And in some groups, you know, and the sort of the Google product teams are a little bit different from some other groups where there's a distinct engineering organization that does deliveries. But I think a lot of this thinking is after Microsoft invented it, the world's largest and first software company that had to invent the notion of a software product leader, right? And so I wonder a little more on the mandate of the leader and the skills of the leader of a product team and how do they roll up in compose and how does it match to the current notion we have in that kind of Silicon Valley product leader model?
1: Yeah, so the leader of, let's call it, back in those days at Microsoft, there were these things called product units. And there was this thing called a PUM. When I arrived in 92 as an intern and then joined in 93, like being a PUM was a really, really big deal. You were the product Product unit unit. manager. Product Mm -hmm. unit manager. And the PUM... And, And there'd be
0: somebody who was in charge of like I don't know, like uh, Windows 3.1? Like there'd be a PUM for Windows 3.1 in the year 1993?
1: There could have been. I can actually speak to exactly how the Windows team was organized. They, it might have been a little more complicated, but there certainly was a PUM for all of Excel, not for a version of Excel, but for all of Excel. And there was a PUM for all of Word, and there was a PUM for all of developer um, of it was application programmability was what it was called. The application Program- programmability product unit, APPU, APU, we called it, which was the group that I first joined. And so this PUM position was you were sort of like the CEO of that business. But interestingly enough, nothing related to the sales of that effort or Managing the channel, or managing back then, ma- managing the manufacturing of that product, were sitting underneath you. So what was sitting underneath you? Like yes, you still had marketing, so you had the people who had to understand the market really, really well and develop a vision for what was happening in the market. You had program managers who were kind of like modern-day product managers. You had a software development team or the engineers, you had a QA organization, and you had a marketing organization that was responsible. I mean, just as you'd expect an organization to have responsible for the positioning and the value proposition and ultimately the design of the box, like what was the box going to have in it and what were the programs that we were going to build around the box and what was going to be the pricing and where were we going to place it and which channels and whatever. And so that was all within this product unit.
2: Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do, maybe at work, maybe not at work but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin, but that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So. If we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space, is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business.
0: So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. So that description of marketing is the kind of intellectual work of marketing. I guess you were just ticking through the five P's of marketing from Kotler. uh, Price, positioning, what are the other ones? I guess the product is one of them, but not the promotion. Placement, I guess, is channel, and then promotion is the last one. The promotion is like, what should we say in our messaging and marketing, I guess? But then deploying money against advertising and all that, was that up to the CEO of the product the head of excel or whatever or that got done at some global level
1: no that was largely at, at a product level for the product like not we're not talking about stuff for the brand microsoft but anything related to marketing of that product was largely deployed. At least, remember, I was a college hire, so my exposure to this was that of a college hire, three levels below the PUM. Was <laughs> Right, was and you may the, not have been sitting in the budgeting meetings designing the app. That's right, exactly. I, I, was, I, you know, I was still wet behind the ears, yeah. But this was really analyzed. The PUM really managed the business, and all of the other elements that supported them, like the channel team, or legal, or HR, or manufacturing. They were support organizations that were matrixed in centrally across the company.
0: Providing services to the, the
1: plums, the CEO, they have all these things to do. And yeah. it really
0: makes sense from understanding what the customer wants, how they want to be spoken to, what is the price they want to pay, to how should the features work, okay. and then let's build it, engineer it, deploy it, test it, whatever. That whole exactly. flow. But isn't it interesting, and I am curious, what was the philosophy of the time that the go-to-market, the sales force, was A wholly different muscle. And what did it feel like when these came into conflict? Presumably, the pump wasn't so happy with the guy who's the head of the American Express account or whatever when they didn't jam in enough Excel or whatever licenses that were trying to get sold.
1: I'm sure that individual would spend a lot of time talking to the leaders of the sales team about the amount of energy that was being dedicated or even, you know, reconsidering, like even pop it up one level from that. What's the licensing strategy for that product? Like, and you picked a great one being Excel. Like, do we go out there and license Excel or do we want to license multiple products together at Microsoft? And it was during that time there started to be this consolidation where that individual thinking at just a PUM level was never going to make the right decision for the whole company, even as it related to. Go to market related to their product down to licensing strategy. So you have to bundle. It up. That's the right. Suite. That's right. The invention
0: the of this like, irresistible package and the lock in of Office. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, talk to me so, about it.
1: Well, I, I was on the it. outside of all of that. I did mm-hmm. not. Now, the product unit that I was in was much, much simpler in a lot of ways. Now, it also had much less, you know, dramatically, dramatically less distribution. It wasn't Windows and it wasn't Office or DOM, Word, Excel. PowerPoint, you know, it was Visual Basic. Well, this was a core piece.
0: I mean, maybe the audience was a little bit smaller, but the developer tools, I mean, that's like the fortress of Microsoft. That's right, 90s,
1: yep. 100%. Yep. And it well, it's the fortress and it's the origin story.
0: And so bundling the suite, do those ideas make their way into the developer tools world? I mean, by the end of the 90s it's called what the bank of a package called it's had some name where you
1: had nine different things, right? Visual Studio and whatever. Yes, absolutely. Fundly did, and like MSDN
0: is (laughs) (laughs) right because we're moving to the internet now, and you need to be on a network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's like support, and there's like whatever services, and there's documentation,
1: and I mean, yeah, but uh, absolutely, you know, this sort of sweet mentality definitely played, and over time, some of the underlying technologies that were driving these separate products ended up needing to align as a result. Like, why do we have multiple? I remember back in the nineties. Having conversations about IDE, why do we have multiple IDs? And so there were visions around a single IDE, independent of what language you were programming. And these were all conversations that had to bubble up beyond just an individual PUM. And that's where things started to get much more complicated.
0: Yeah, talk to me about that dialogue. So there's an extent to which no matter how small or how big your company is, certain problems repeat. And some of the patterns are who is to be master, the supply side or the demand side. Meaning, is it the customer or is it the product we're creating? Or Can there be multiples of things or should they all be integrated into the single ideal thing? And if it will be ideal, when will we achieve that? If there is a keeper of the number or the chart or the roadmap, what's the time cycle of it? Is it real time or daily or weekly or monthly or quarterly? I mean, these issues, they repeat in different forms if you sort of mix and match the things that I just mentioned. And I think the prism of developer tools through the 90s, the integrated IDE or not, the bundle or standalone, the license or the package software, the Salesforce is to be master or the product pumps are to be master. I mean, I'm just so curious as you search through this, especially into the late 90s when you're becoming a leader of the different products that you were in charge of, whether it was .NET or uh, some of the other network products. I'm curious how you saw Microsoft handle it and change and be frustrated by it or get it right on these perennial well, issues, because now this last decade, I presume you have seen them again.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think you're you're sort of taking me down memory lane to a certain extent. Keep in mind that I sort of voted with my feet at Microsoft around my sort of personal drive to solve the sorts of issues that you're referring to because I got away from all that pretty quickly. The kind of things that you raise, those are big, hard Strategic conversations. And at Microsoft, people would sit in rooms for sometimes years. Like, I don't even know how long a group of senior executives, and I mean, you know, Bill, probably Bill and his key lieutenants, were talking about what eventually evolved with Office. Like, we just saw it happen. But I can tell you that those, the big, strategic, hard, cross company sort of issues that you're referring to would often be the kind of questions and issues that Microsoft executives would talk about for months and months and months and sometimes for years. Before that a good
0: thing or a bad thing?
1: I can't speak to whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing. At the time, you know, I would say that Microsoft got most of these things right in the end. And so, you know, through that time period, I only saw Success. It's impossible for us to know how much more success they might have had if they made some of those decisions that they made earlier. I mean, we can't know. It's entirely possible that we could say that they made it at exactly the right time when the necessary you know, chips and cards had been turned over on the table and they had the right information they needed in front of them to make the right decision for the company. But the company was well, the hugely successful. So the counterfactual
0: is so, hard, but here's the, here's the, that's part right. that's but, I'll, but I,
1: I'll, I'll tell you that wasn't for me. I was the kind of guy i remember what I said at the beginning, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I like to move quickly. I like to make decisions fast. You know, I'm not a big fan of sitting around a room and talking about things for weeks or months or potentially years. And so I voted with my feet. I like, I <laughs> got myself out of those types of difficult issues and product groups and directed myself into groups that felt more startupy and more nimble. So, so I ended up we having can, a whole lot of exposure.
0: As an observer of all, of all these rhythms, I think there is something interesting that I, I want to extract your comment on. You're in this place, you're in, you're in one of the greatest organizations of all time, one of the most dominant
1: businesses, the most valuable company in the world just 20 years old by that. Isn't it amazing? I just want to call attention to the fact, if we'd been having this conversation a year and a half or two years ago, like very recently, even a year ago, the entire tenor of sort of Microsoft position would have been different, right? And Microsoft is back, is what you're pointing out. No, no, no. Even Microsoft today.
0: You mean to say that a year and a half ago, we would have been saying too bad that Microsoft lost its way? Or we we yeah. be saying... That's right.
1: Yeah. Like, how did Microsoft lose its way? How could it be like this company that was at the top and now they're irrelevant and blah, 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 blah. And now, like, the conversation is different, right?
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> things, it's it's such, it's such a short time.
1: Do happen. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, I guess the low point <laughs> I think was that's so interesting. Just a few years ago, but I think it's worth a trillion dollars as of this moment. And yep. that ain't bad. It's more valuable right. than it ever was. And certainly, the glory days are something that are interesting to hear about. I think it's a kind of a new period of great glory that might be interesting to learn about. But back in that moment, okay, so you weren't in every meeting, you weren't in the inner sanctum, you weren't chartered, you didn't love anything, didn't love everything. However, in the building on the campus, you can provide a few yes or no type answers to in this organization that no one could argue it was dysfunctional. It was the most functional of all organizations in the world. Of course, some things aren't going to be perfect. What are some patterns? So one of the patterns was a feeling of perpetual paranoia slash humility, okay, powering a wide-ranging, super-aggressive innovation culture. The founder and the leader is the keeper of the flame. Everyone loves Bill, even though they've never met Bill, right? Those are a couple of things you already told me. So what else is true of that place? I'm curious to learn. One other thing you told me is some of these huge, cross-cutting, complicated strategy decisions. We're only made at the top, closed doors, Bill and the lieutenants. Is that roughly true? Not a massively decentralized
1: innovation culture, but rather a inner sanctum. I got the sense that that was the case. There was an enormous amount of conversation that happened in the branches So the next point
0: is the discussion and the fact gathering and the debate on issues was
1: widely decentralized throughout the organization. So people were
0: struggling as a group with a question. Everyone's writing memos, going to meetings, having debates, they're at lunch, they're at dinner, they're and it's like, uh, and so the whole company is being roiled by a difficult question of like, how do we respond to the internet? Or what yes. do you do about, you know, the shift away from package software? Or mm-hmm. And it's visible to you as you're walking the campus. So another question for you is um, the decision seemed when they were large to be deployed fast, but after a lengthy period of organizational meditation deliberation. So you'd, you'd, a you'd a great be surprised way to when an issue That's a great way was, to put it. Yeah. So you knew it was being discussed. But then the lightning bolt comes out, there's a memo from Bill, boom, it's done. This is what we're doing from now on.
1: I think you could probably, and again, you're leveraging my memory, that pattern is likely reasonable, although in the moment, it did not feel that way. It's easy. I mean, you know, hindsight, but so we can look back at 10 or 15 years and we can follow these patterns and say, yeah, that's what actually happened. But it did not. it, It felt the people who would sit around and talk about the really, really hard issues, We often felt, because this was part of the culture, we had a culture of ownership. Even though, I mean, when I joined the company, we were 14,000 people. I think when I left, we were north of 70,000. For that entire period of time, from day one, even at 14,000 people, every individual at the company felt, at least in the product group, the group that I was exposed to, we felt like we owned the company. When we were sitting in those conversations that were happening sort of in the branches of the tree, we really felt... Like, these were our decisions to make. And I think largely the reason why those conversations would end up just continuing to happen and happen and happen again is because we weren't. But we didn't know that. That wasn't the reality we were living in. We were just, like, you would just get frustrated because you felt like you were the owner, but somehow you, you think, weren't able to why do you think cause it felt like the, the decision the to company? occur. It was a cultural element. Uh, like, I don't know if Microsoft was the first. You probably know better than I do. You know, the first... To really leverage employee ownership and stock options. Yeah, it was early you know, and
0: it had many thousands of people that became millionaires from owning shares.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I arrived as a, an employee and I got handed a, a stock option grant that was, you know, relatively speaking, tiny, but that tiny grant was referenced almost daily by my leadership. Like, you're an owner, this is your company, you got to decide. Like, this is your decision to make. Like, as an in, even as an intern, even before I got a stock option grant, I was blown away. And I think it was the thing that was most powerful about Microsoft and the reason why it was so appealing to many college graduates is you'd arrive at this at this big company and all of a sudden be seemingly given this enormous amount of responsibility. Like, oh my God, like the words you'd hear them on new hires, I own blah, like I own The visual basic custom control development kit. Like that culture of ownership was a deep rooted value of the business. And you got that message in
0: the language of like shares and money, I guess, back then.
1: But then authority that came with it. It's like, you're an owner, you decide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like I really felt like I really believed it. As a young child at Microsoft, I believed it. it was, and, and you would hear examples of Bill looking at a relatively junior person in a review and say, this is, you own this. This is your problem. What's the answer? And for a lot of people, that was incredibly empowering. You know, for people who wanted to make a difference and have impact and felt, you know, relatively confident in their skills, you know, if you compared this to the other options that you had coming out of college of going to work in an investment bank where you're this associate who's doing the work that's defined three levels above you and, you know, like you have zero ownership, it was powerful.
0: Yeah, how amazing. Well, eventually you decided to leave. You uh, started this, like, family collaboration app thing, Cozy, which I think I actually have used over these last number of years at a certain point. Oh, great! Because I'm I'm sort of a productivity nerd, and I, I think every possible collab thing has been on my phone at some point for some reason. I guess you ran that business for about 10 years. And then the new one, 98 or something like that? 98.6? Yep. Talk to me about 98.6, and then let's draw some contrasts to... Um, those Microsoft glory days. I'm curious how startups and young companies, change makers today can take lessons as you must have from that period in the 90s. But first, talk to me about
1: 98. 90.6 is setting out to address what we see as a primary care crisis in America. The easiest way for me to sort of describe what it is that we do. You know, on the one hand, we know that primary care physicians are at a deep shortage. You know, 20,000 primary care physician shortage by 2020, rising to north of 40,000 by the year 2025. On the flip side, we know that more primary care is better. So, you know, every single time a single individual develops a real relationship with primary care, like a real relationship, someone who they can turn to whenever they have a question, someone who they're looking to to help them manage their health over a long period of time. When someone develops that relationship, not only are they north of 16% less likely to die a premature death, but they will save on the order of 30% on their healthcare costs over the course of their lifetime. So you have this shortage, and yet we know that primary care is good, that people should be demanding it more. And yet all the solutions that are occurring in the marketplace right now, we see as highly regressive. Like they're actually delivering, like helping, devolve primary care into sickness care, which prevents people from having to build those relationships with primary care. So what we're trying to do at 90.6, by virtue of delivering on-demand primary care on your phone that you can access from absolutely anywhere through primarily a secure private text-based experience, we are trying to enable, for now, everyone in the United States to Develop a relationship with primary care again. We're, we're trying to save good old fashioned primary care through this highly accessible, <laughs> high quality, very, very low cost primary care experience. That's what we're doing.
0: So it's a telemedicine thing for frontline
1: care. You get your phone open and you're like, well, my health, no. real doctors. Is- get to chat with you. It's very different from traditional old-fashioned telemedicine. You know, traditional old-fashioned telemedicine has been around for, you know, 10 to 15 years depending on how you count it. 80% of the US has access to it, though less than 1% of the US of the people who have access to it actually use it, and that's been the case forever. That has not changed. That number is neither going up nor going down. That's traditional old-fashioned telemedicine. 90.6 on the other hand, has utilization rates that within six months of deploying in a single customer, and we have deployed with north of 70 customers now, we have utilization rates on average higher than 6%. And that's just within six months. The key difference is, you know, I put traditional old fashioned telemedicine in the same camp as many of the other regressive developments that have happened in what we're calling, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, primary care, which has, like I said, devolved primary care to sickness care. It really is just for sickness. Like if you have a cold or you have you know, a sore arm or you have a, an issue with your, with your knee or on your skin, you know, here's a place you can go it's a transaction, you give us 40 or 45 or 50 bucks, and we'll get a doctor to tell you, what your, you know, what your diagnosis is and maybe write you a script, most likely actually write you a script. That doesn't build a relationship. That's traditional fashion telemedicine, that's urgent care, that's uh, the retail clinic. And they're doing a, a, you know a reasonable job of helping people with sickness, but that doesn't help Americans develop relationships with primary care, unless you put Ooh primary care in their pocket and make it free to use on the margin, people are not going to develop a relationship with it, which is what we're trying to achieve. So we I want think, to yeah, be my here doctors for our patients. Uh,
0: they keep retiring between
1: my checkups. So then I lose well, yeah, them. yeah, because, because it
0: takes a couple years before I yeah, get a new and,
1: and, and, Or they turn down my insurance it's not a big surprise. I get a new one. Yeah. And it's, it's not surprising because, you know, the treadmill that they're on is largely untenable. You know, this problem, I'm I'm expressing the problem from the side of the patient, which is obviously who we tend to really focus all of our uh, thinking around. But it turns out that there's a similar, like rather dramatic problem, and, you know, you have to ask the question, you know, why is there a shortage of primary care physicians? Um, the job
0: is really hard these days,
1: isn't it? No, well, it's not just that it's hard, it's 11. kind of terrible, you know, yeah. because you're part of the system that has basically transactionalized the care that you're giving. You're not compensated anymore for having an interesting conversation with someone about their health. In fact, the yeah, whole community... Yeah, we're asking one
0: more question that might get you to the spot instead of just turn them over faster. All right, so I can get the right. now? I, if people are listening, they can download 98.6 now if they're in the U.S. Absolutely. And, you know, so we're offered in uh, all 50
1: states and D.C.
0: And, and then what happens if I like, sign up using my... Insurance, or I just like type in my username, and then you give me somebody, and we talk a bit, and then depending on what's going on, then it starts. When does the money start moving?
1: Our direct to consumer offer, which is the way that most of your listeners or you would be able to try it, is twenty dollars. So you pay twenty dollars for a for the first year, um, and that's for unlimited access to ninety eight point six with no utilization fees. And after that, actually, there's a little caveat. We're charging $1 per visit.
0: Visit? Like That's right. Per session in the app or like live visits somewhere?
1: Per time that you actually engage with a physician.
0: Oh, I see. So like every inquiry, I mean, how many times are you going to do that? So like, let's say I pay the $20. I mean, maybe like two to four times this year, I might get worried enough to bother asking a question. Given the convenience, it might be two to four times. Whereas in normal life, I just don't go to the doctor about anything.
1: Our hope is that it would actually be, you know, in the next couple of years as we develop out our capabilities on the health front, that you're actually engaging with 98.6 literally every month. I mean, that's how you build a relationship. And so we're going to give you reasons to want to engage with us when you have that question, wondering about whatever, you can turn to 98.6 and it's essentially free to use. For our um, self-insured employer customers who aren't on an HSA plan, they buy it for their employees and it is indeed free to use. So our model is subscription-based, $20 for the first year, $120 every year after that for unlimited access to primary care.
0: Okay, so in future years, it might be 10 bucks a month, but it's just like a direct line to get real answers instead of calling 50 times to get an appointment. Yep. If I'm an employer, I give my staff way, way better frontline care it resembles maybe a little bit some of these subscription doctor networks like one medical or whatever but using primarily a digital frontline on all this stuff and then you might refer into doing labs or or this and that is that?
1: Yeah, so we order labs, you know, we write prescriptions. If it's an issue that needs to be escalated, we can refer the individual out to ambulatory care. Uh, But we're resolving, you know, north of 90% of the issues that come in, even though we open up the front door as wide as we can. You know, we tell people to come to ninety point six with any issue they have, big or small, complicated or simple, no matter what. We want you to, to feel like you can come and we're going to do our best to address the issue. If we can't address it, we'll tell you where you need to look.
0: Robbie, this is an exciting business that you've been building the last few years and it's certainly one of the largest categories in the universe. I think it's like one-seventh of the US economy. It might be one-sixth by now. And I'm certainly going to use your service. Hopefully some of the listeners under the know will check it out. And we will see in your handiwork all the hard-won lessons from what is today, as we're talking, the most valuable company in the world at (laughs) $1.05 trillion. It's ironic that we're speaking today about Microsoft in so much length and detail. So amazing.
1: You know, Satya has done Well, Satya and the entire company have done an amazing job. I think it really comes down to ultimately the people who Satya has brought on board and empowered and he's just, he's doing truly an incredible job with the company. It's got to be one of the most phenomenal turnarounds of all time. There's an enormous amount to be proud of across the lake at Microsoft.
0: Thank you so much for being on In The Know, Robbie.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me and I look forward to continuing the conversation.
0: Hey, listeners, thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love. Write a review, please. A five-star review spreads the word and people will follow. Cheers, thank you, and stay tuned for the next 30 episodes. I'm so excited we've just passed a big milestone. It didn't take long, and all of a sudden we're up at 40 episodes of people telling us how to spread great ideas.